You can open your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. We are approaching the end of our series on forgiveness. The series on forgiveness is going to naturally lead to some other topics uh, that are kind of logically flow out of this one, as you're going to see in the coming weeks. But we're approaching the end, and we've been learning over the past few weeks about the, de- the destructive effects of unforgiveness, the destructive effects of unforgiveness. And I think as we think about things that we could preach that are practical, this is one that I think touches all of us. We all at times have struggled with an uh, inability or an unwillingness to forgive others who have harmed us. We all struggle with this. There's some of us who are struggling with it even this morning. And what we've been learning, and this is true of the Christian faith in a lot of areas, is that what God's done for us is He's given us, uh, by virtue of His relationship with us and our understanding of His character and what He has done for us through Jesus and what He now expects of us, when we take all that together by faith and then seek to make practical application, that's what helps us to forgive. And I hope that you've been getting that impression as we've gone through this series. We've said that forgiveness is a determination not to hold our offender to account for their offense. It's not simply an internalization saying, okay, well, I'm just going to try not to think about it anymore. It is a decisive action whereby we put away all bitterness and anger and refuse to replay or dwell upon those offenses again. Forgiveness is giving up any desire to retaliate or see our offender suffer for what they've done. It's a desire to offer to others the free forgiveness that we've received from God. Forgiveness in a nutshell. And again, what we've seen over the past few weeks is that we can't withhold from forgiveness from others without suffering a host of detrimental effects. And we've called these the destructive effects of unforgiveness. In fact, what we learned is that God actually has designed the Christian life in such a way where we're kind of boxed into a corner. When we understand all that he's done for us and what he expects from us, really the Christian is left with no other option than to forgive. This is God's design for the Christian life. And so he's connected relational forgiveness with him to our forgiveness of others. And so we had been starting in Matthew chapter 6, where in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives the model prayer. And in the model prayer, we are to pray, forgive us. And forgive us, how? Forgive us as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so... God has built into our model prayer given to us from the lips of Jesus Christ the expectation that we'll forgive others. Forgive us as we've forgiven our debtors. And that's hard because some of us this morning have been hurt. We've been hurt very deeply. We've been hurt in ways that are inexcusable. We've been hurt in ways that if we were to bring it to the surface and let others know, that person really justifiably should suffer and be punished. Some of you are holding hurts that you just don't share with anybody. This is the nature of life in this world. This is a sinful world. It's a fallen world. It's a corrupt world. And you suffer at the hands of others, and I suffer at the hands of others, and and some of us have, have suffered more deeply than others, but that's just the reality of life in this world. But the good news is that God forgives But not only does God forgive, but God then equips those whom he has forgiven to be able to forgive others. And it's essential that we forgive others because as we have learned and as we will learn, when we harbor unforgiveness, it really doesn't do much against the person who has violated us. In fact, what it does is it really just eats us up. 
And so we've said that unforgiveness, part of the destructive effects of unforgiveness, and the reason why God demands that we forgive others, is because we cannot withhold forgiveness from others without it also exposing a host of other unhelpful attitudes. If we withhold forgiveness from others, really what we're doing is we're belittling, uh, I should say this, we are betraying the forgiveness that God has given to us. And we saw that connection in Matthew 18, that the expectation is you've been forgiven much, so go forgive much. It betrays the forgiveness of God. We said it bypasses the justice of God. Uh, I'm going to hang on to this. And, And just think about how puny our efforts at retaliation are anyway. But we hold the right and say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get payback for this. I'm going to hold that person in a prison in my own heart, uh, and they're just going to be there until I feel that they have suffered and paid. And what we do is we say, this justice is mine. And so unforgiveness betrays the forgiveness of God. It bypasses the justice of God. It belittles the suffering of Christ saying that though he was willing to suffer for the sins committed against him, I am unwilling to suffer for the sins committed against me, thereby putting our worth even above his. It breaks the commandments of God, as we saw uh, last week, because he commands us even to love our enemies. He tells us to love one another just as he has loved us. And how did he love us? While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then we said that it balks at the sovereignty of God. That is, it's an unwillingness to accept that even the most difficult circumstances of life come to us at the hand of a sovereign God who providentially allows circumstances at times that are difficult, which can all work for our good and for his glory. And then we said, because of all of this, and God has told us, unforgiveness then bars the worship of God. So he actually gives us an account of somebody who comes to worship, a parable. He comes to the altar to worship, and he says that there you remember that your brother has something against you. Go and make it right before you can worship. And so the unforgiving heart is a heart that's really incapable of worshiping as God would have us to worship. So this is serious stuff. And you can understand then why God says, you've got to forgive. If you're unforgiving, all these attitudes we just pointed out are true of you. And so... We have to be right with others in order to be right with him. And so we said last time, if we put all those things in the positive, what do we do? We relinquish our desire for justice to his capable hands as the just judge. We rest in his sovereignty, believing that all circumstances work ultimately for our good, even the difficult things. And then we release that person from the prison of our own bitterness, and then we can find rest as well. Well, thus far, we've dealt primarily with how unforgiveness is destructive towards our relationship, towards God. Today, as we move on, we're going to see that unforgiveness also breeds in us a host of other sinful attitudes and unhelpful consequences. First of all, we're going to see this morning that unforgiveness really enslaves us to bitterness. It enslaves us to bitterness. And I said, and I've used this before quoting another preacher, that to be unforgiving or to be bitter is like having poison in a jar that eats its own host. We think that we're holding others to account by having them in our crosshairs all the time. We're going to hold them. They're going to be on our hate list until they pay. We think that we're doing some harm to them. In reality, all we're doing is enslaving ourselves to a life of bitterness. It's hard. I get it. It's, also, it's, it's especially hard when those who hurt us 
are then able to just go and live life as if there's no consequences. Some people who have hurt you, and as you're still suffering and reeling from those, those hurts, are out there just prospering. I mean, they look like they're being blessed. They got a better job than you. They've got uh, what appears to be a good relationships. Of course, if you see it on social media, it's probably all fake anyway. But you watch others, and it appears as if they're getting away with it. You're hurt. You're embittered. This has deeply affected you, and they seem to be getting off scot free. Well, in Psalm 73, we read an account of a psalmist who was experiencing these exact kinds of feelings. This was a real serious struggle for this individual. He looked out and he saw unbelievers and enemies who have caused him hurt, apparently just going on with life and being blessed. This was a deep struggle for him. And it's a deep struggle for us. And so God's given us this psalm uh, really to be uh, helpful and somewhat therapeutic We're just going to work our way through the psalm. I'm not going to read the whole psalm to start with. We're just going to work our way through it. So why don't you follow with us? And let's just see this man's attitude and how he dealt with his struggle, seeing others who have harmed him, uh, apparently, thriving in life. Psalm 73, verse 1. The psalmist says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He's looking back now. And he's saying, something happened in my life where I have to say, I almost lost it. I almost just fell flat on my face. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I almost got it wrong. He's going to say, a time came where my thinking was wrong. My attitude was wrong. My emotions were wrong. My steps had nearly slipped. How is this so? What what happened in this man's life? Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why was he envious? For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's not an insult. That's actually a compliment. He's saying they have everything they need. For they have no pangs until death. What he's saying is, I'm looking at others who have caused harm. And they don't seem to suffer at all in this life. In fact, they don't suffer until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Listen, there's others who are suffering. But they're not suffering. There's others who are hurt, but they're not hurt. And and, and what's the consequence of this? Therefore, pride is their necklace. Whatever they've done, and we're going to see that they have harmed this individual, whatever they've done, they've gotten away with. Not only have they gotten away with it, but then they've just gone on to prosper. They've seen that there's no consequence for their actions, and so they've just been built up in even more pride, and you can bet that if they've hurt one and they've gotten away with it, they're probably out there hurting others because there's no consequence. So the psalmist sees this and says, well, how do I understand this? They don't seem to suffer until death. They seem to be, they're strong. They don't experience trouble. Yet they're wicked and they're violent and they're inflicting harm on others. Getting away with it. 
Pride is their necklace. The psalmist could be saying that, and I, having been victimized by them, just stand by and watch them seemingly prosper. Verse 7 continues the description. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Again, that's a compliment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. These are those who seem, according to others, to have it together. And in their pride, they strut. I love that word. They just strut as if they got it all together and they're those who ought to be revered and respected and even feared. They scoff, they swell, they overflow with follies, they strut through the earth. And then verse 10 says, therefore. There's a consequence to this. The psalmist is observing. Because these seem to be getting away with hurting others, and there's some who you feel may have gotten away with hurting you. Because it appears as if, this is the condition of life on this earth, because it appears that those who have done wrong sometimes get away with it. There's a consequence in verse 10. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Well, now, if I'm looking at two groups of people, and these people over here seem to be prosperous, they seem to have status in life, they seem to get away with everything, and these people over here appear to be doing things right, but they suffer. Well, now I'm going to start questioning things. This group seems to be blessed. This group seems to be suffering. And so maybe if I'm going to choose what group I want to associate with, why wouldn't I kind of lean in this direction over here? So it says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And then a theological question comes to mind. If they're getting away with all of this, then does God really know? I mean, and don't you ask this question? Is this not the number one question that people ask? Uh, in order to question Christianity? If there is a God, then why is there evil? That's the question. That's the question being raised here. If these people can perpetrate evil and get away with it, then surely there can be no God, or at least a, a God who's not involved in the affairs of man. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Verse 12 says, Behold, these are, uh, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So this does raise questions. And we're, so we're sympathetic to the questions. And so there's situations in your life where you've been harmed, you've been hurt by others. They seem to be getting away with it. No consequences. Prosperity in this life. Others seem to be going off and following them. And so what? We, the, the conclusion is, well, they're not suffering. God must not be watching. The natural conclusion from that, then, is what reward do I have for the life that I'm living? They can get away with whatever they want to get away with, and God's not watching, and they're being blessed. Then why in the world am I living the life that I'm living? Why do I try to love others, and why do I, try, why do I forgive others freely? Why am I trying to keep my life in order? Why am I trying to please God in my life when there seems to be no apparent blessing, and they are being blessed? What's the point? And that's exactly what the psalmist says in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. 
For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I'm trying to live for God. I'm trying to pursue holiness. I'm trying to be innocent. I have been keeping myself from those same behaviors. But they're not suffering any consequences, and apparently they're being blessed. And he says that I'm stricken and rebuked every morning. I suffer pain. I struggle. And what benefit do I have? He's saying, I'm not going to be rewarded for my life that I'm living for God. Why then am I doing this? Why don't I just throw in with them? But then the psalmist realizes something. And really what we've seen so far, and as we're going to explore here, is that the psalmist at this point has been looking at this situation purely from an earthly, fleshly, temporary perspective. What's going to happen in the psalmist's life is that he's going to have a perspective shift that's going to make all the difference in the world. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And now the psalmist, again, remember, he's looking back. So this is a struggle he's been through, and now he's on the other side of it. After stating everything he said up to verse 14, he said, Now, had I continued with that attitude, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What a bad example I would have been if that was my attitude. And I would have betrayed others, and I would have led them astray. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. This is a serious emotional struggle that this psalmist is experiencing. How do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of this? The prosperity of the wicked, the fact that those who bring harm to the people of God and seemingly get away with it, seemingly blessed, while those who obey God are struggling. Well, the psalmist, struggling with this, decides, i got to figure this out. i got to meditate on this. And so he goes to the sanctuary of God. And there he spends time contemplating. This is so important because what he's going to do now is he's going to apply theology. So everything we've already learned, all those points that I already gave you about the justice and sovereignty of God and so on, this would be the equivalent of you taking everything we've learned over the past few weeks and just sitting in a calm, quiet room and just ruminating. Just thinking on those things. Think of the justice of God. Think of the sovereignty of God. Think of the suffering of Christ. Just mull over those things. That would be the equivalent of what he's doing here. He says, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So now he's shifting from an attitude of just focusing on the temporal and the present, and now he's considering the eternal. Okay, so this is an attitude shift. This is a perspective shift. And now he begins, I think, to speak properly. This is the application of his understanding of theology. And so he says in verse 17, 18, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. But he's saying, you know what? From an eternal perspective, prosperity now, what what people are going to be deceived into thinking is blessing now, status now, freedom now, liberty now, that's what's happening now on this earth earth in the present. But 
When we actually then put the, the, the eternal perspective on, put those goggles on, eternal perspective, we see, see something completely different. We recognize that those who are strutting through this life are actually strutting in slippery places. They're going to fall, and they're going to fall hard. All this that they're experiencing now, this life, just like a dream, but one day they're going to wake up. So the, the psalmist here regains his eternal perspective. Luke 9.25, Jesus himself says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, listen again, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? doesn't matter what else you have going on in life. If you lose your soul, you're damned. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Paul, speaking of the unbeliever who rebels against God, says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of the wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, what a difference between what Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 2 and what the psalmist was deceived into thinking when he watched the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist thinks there's no consequence, but Paul is saying no. Truly, they're walking in slippery places, and while they're walking in slippery places, they are storing up for themselves wrath from God against the day of wrath. And although God may delay justice, He's never lapsed in the execution of justice. Justice will come, though delayed. And so the eternal perspective says the day is coming when God will pour out his wrath. Now, in all of this talk about forgiveness and freeing people from their, from their hurts against us and so on, let me just remind you again, this does not in any way say we don't care about justice. It doesn't in any way say that they shouldn't pay. When you go all the way back to, all the, way to the book of Revelation, remember the picture of those saints there, there by the altar, the martyrs, the souls of the martyrs, those who have been killed for Christ? What do they say? What do they cry night and day from the altar? How long, O Lord? And how long until you pour out your fury upon those who have killed? And God answers. And how does he answer? Well, that was the time, and God did pour out his judgment. This is not a foregoing of justice. This is simply saying justice is not ours. Lord, if you see fit... According to your timing, you judge, but it's not mine to carry out. So this doesn't in any way say that the guilty should go free and never uh, pay the price, but it simply says we are not in that position. And re- remember when Jesus was with his, apostle, his disciples and they're walking and they're going through a, a town and the town rejects them and says, you can't come through here. And well, remember, remember the response of Jesus' disciples. They turned to Jesus and said, Lord, would you have us call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Remember that? It was a Samaritan town. And the disciples say, let's, let's just blow them up. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. You know, he just rebukes them. But you know what you find later on 
in the life of the church is that when salvation is opened up after the day of Pentecost, you actually find many Samaritans coming to Christ and being saved. Some of those who Jesus' disciples were willing to call down fire to obliterate because they rejected them, later on would come to Christ and be saved. What's the lesson? Those who offend us will suffer. Their their sin will bring the justice that it deserves. Either upon their own heads by the wrath of God at some point future, or they might come to repentance. Think about that. That person you have in your crosshairs that you're always holding saying to account, saying they must pay, how would you pray that they get saved? Lord, take their sin and place it upon Jesus Christ so that they too can be forgiven. Either way, their sin is paid for. Either paid for in the person of Christ or paid for in eternity when God pours out his wrath. The bottom line is the day is coming when judgment will come. The, the psalmist is beginning to understand this. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the suffering that the Thessalonians were experiencing, for which you are also suffering. Since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Do you notice that word in verse 6? Just. It's a matter of justice. God considers it just to repay those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And you say, well, this sounds awesome. Okay? Justice against those who afflict, and then reward, relief for those who have been afflicted. We say, well, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I want, like now. But what does it say? It says that God will grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So that's future. That's eschatological. That's the end times. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. Okay, so... We don't forego justice or we don't devalue justice. Justice must be had. It's not ours to execute. And our desire should be to love our enemies and to pray that their sins will be placed upon Christ when they exercise faith in him and that they too could be forgiven by God. But without that repentance, the fact of the matter is every sinner is going to pay for the sin that they've committed, either in Christ or themselves via eternity in hell. Our psalmist, when he puts on his eternal glasses, now he's applying theology. I see now. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And so he recovers the proper perspective. He's looking at things now from an eternal or spiritual perspective. He realizes his error. He was harboring bitterness against those who harmed him and uh, against God, frankly, who was not judging them. Look at verse 21 of Psalm 73. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, 
I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He's saying, I was captive to bitterness. I was embittered and I was pricked in my heart. It's like bitterness was a thorn. It's like bitterness was a thorn in the flesh, a thorn in the heart. Just always there, always irritating, always on your mind. I was embittered. And when I was like that, I was acting like a brutish beast. Ignorant. I wasn't seeing things spiritually. I wasn't seeing things eternally. I was just responding in my flesh, like an animal. And really, that's a great description of bitterness. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. Just a constant annoyance and awareness that somebody out there has offended me and they should pay. But it's kind of like the picture of maybe like, a, like, like an animal with a thorn in its paw or something. You, you see this animal, you're not immediately sure what the issue is. But they're aggressive. They're violent. Something shifted in their attitude. You go to approach. And all of a sudden, that dog that was once very friendly wants to bite your hand off. Why? It's got a thorn in its, in its foot. You ever meet somebody? And you talk to them. Maybe you bring up a subject or bring up an individual. And the response you get, and you say, well, where did that come from? What's that person's problem? You see, the countenance changes. The responses change. They got a thorn of bitterness stuck in them. What forgiveness does is it removes the thorn of bitterness. The soul that was once embittered finds relief. And so the psalmist says, I was ignorant, I was fleshly, I was responding according to my natural impulses. Instead of applying what I knew about you, and instead of putting on that eternal perspective, and thinking about your love for me, and the plans that you have for me, I failed. Verse 23. Nevertheless, now, this is getting good. This, again, continues his application of theology. And relationship. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And I love this shift because you see the word you referring to God six times, I think, here. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I might not have vindication here. I might actually lose some earthly status here. But you know what I do have here? I have you. You are always with me. You hold my right hand. You're my companion. You're my guide. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you're going to receive me to glory. You're my savior. You're my companion. You're my guide. You're my savior. But now look at this. And you say, okay, eternal perspective. And you say, okay, well, we're, all just, we're just looking future. One day he'll judge. One day I'll be rewarded. And, and that's true. And God does call us to that type of delayed gratification, that type of deference to the future where we actually deny ourselves now looking forward to future fulfillment. That's true. But there's something else amazing here. He's not just looking to the future and looking to heaven because he says this in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's saying that as I walk through this life, this life, you have my hand. As I walk through this life here and now, you're continually with me. You guide me now and you counsel me now. And then afterward, you'll receive me to glory. In other words, it's both here and future. It's both earth and heaven. 
That's relationship with the Lord. We can forgive others and thrive in our relationship with God. We say it this way. We must nurture our relationship with the Father so that we can forgive. The confidence and the comfort of knowing that He's with us and that He holds our hand and that He guides and that He counsels and that He's my Savior and He's going to receive me to glory. That confidence and that relationship now enables me then to handle anything else from other people. I don't need their acceptance. I don't need their status. I don't even need retribution. i got everything I need in this world. I have Christ. And I say I have Christ even though that this is, you know... Uh, is speaking of the Father at this point, because look at the language here. I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. If you were to write a cross-reference there next to that passage, I wonder if there's some other Old Testament passage you would put there in the cross-reference. How about Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, where? In the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. saying, He's with me, he guides me, he sustains me, he comforts me, and he does all this even in the presence of my enemies. He's not taking the enemies away, he's not sparing me my enemies, but he comforts me and he guides me and he loves me even in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, present, and I should dwell in the house of the Lord forever, future. And who ultimately is the good shepherd? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. For the believer, we understand that Jesus is continually with us. He's continually at our right hand. He guides us with counsel. He will receive us to glory. Who do we have in heaven but him? And there should be nothing on earth that we desire besides him. As long as you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to do the hurts that others inflict upon you. Look what he says in verse 26 of Psalm 73. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Portion kind of has the idea like inheritance. The inheritance has been meted to me. This is all my belongings. This is all my property. This is everything that I have. What is it? Everything that I have is what? It's God. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. Now, notice verse 27, verse 28. Notice verse 27, there's a reference to you, reference to God. Verse 28, but for me. Okay, so verse 27, is this what you're doing? Verse 28, but this is what I must do. Pertaining to you, now pertaining to me. So verse 27, you put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. What is he doing? He's entrusting offenses to the justice of God. That's what you do. That's for me. It's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I, that I may tell of all your works. I've taken my eyes off of them. He was obsessed. He's watching. Look at them. You ever do this? You're on Facebook, right? Ladies, that guy who treated you terribly, now he's posting pictures of him with his new girlfriend. 
Look at them. That's disgusting. I just, but I got to keep scrolling, right? Just keep watching. The person who's hurt you and you see them going on with life, and you just fixate upon that. But here the psalmist is taking his eyes off of that and saying, you put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. You deal with that. But as for me, it's good to be near God. That's where my comfort, my sustenance, my satisfaction, my fulfillment comes from. I'm going to nurture my relationship with God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. Now, verse 28, he says, I might tell of all your works. Remember earlier, he said that the way he was behaving before, he was actually betraying and leading astray the children of God. So, so on one hand, he was actually poor testimony, harming others. In, in verse 28, he says, well, now that I've got it right, I can actually tell all your works to others. I'm going to be an encouragement to others. So, in summary, the psalmist thinks and recognizes the end the consequence, the eternal consequence that those who have offended him are going to experience. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong to value justice. You should value justice. Just like you value the holiness of God, you value the justice of God. God is glorified when he executes judgment on sin. Why? Because it puts his holiness on display. We value justice and we do long for justice. Lord, how long? How long before you'll judge? That's fine. We just recognize that's his domain. But as for me, it's simply good to walk with the Lord. Nurture my relationship with God. Find solace in Him. That's all I need in this life. And He can deal with the rest in His timing. This is important because we said that this is bitterness. The psalmist was struggling with his bitterness. It was welling up inside of him like that thorn in his foot, in his side. We understand that biblically speaking, we're almost done here. Biblically speaking for Christians, we've got to put away all bitterness. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What does it do? It brings it all back full circle to what? Remember how God in Christ forgave you. Remembering how God in Christ forgave us frees us to let go of all bitterness and all wrath and all anger and all clamor and all slander, and it can all be put away from us. Conclusion. Unforgiveness is destructive to our relationship with God. It's It's destructive in our relationship to others, and it's destructive really to our own emotional life. First of all, to be determined to see justice had and to therefore withhold forgiveness is a matter of personal pride, saying that I'm going to take care of this. God's not doing it the way I want him to do it. So I'm just going to set myself on the throne. It's an unwillingness to release the person in question from the debt they've incurred until they suffer or pay, thus restoring the respect that we believe we deserve. Such an attitude can't handle the fact that those who cause us harm seem to be finding success in this life. And I just say, take your eyes off of that. Take your eyes off of them. Set them on Christ. Recognize what's going to happen in the future. We question whether God knows or cares in the absence of any evidence that God is punishing them here and now. We're determined to keep matters alive in our own hearts. Next, unforgiveness never exists in isolation. It breeds all sorts of other detrimental emotions, bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, malice, to name a few. It leads us ultimately to self-pity. The answer, again, is to look to Christ and to his example. Remember that he's forgiven us when we didn't deserve it. Relinquish the right to justice into his capable hands. 
Rest in the sovereignty of God, believing that all circumstances work ultimately for our good and for His glory. And finally, to release the person we've had in our crosshairs, letting them go free, just like the Lord let us go free. And justice will be done, right? That's the confidence. Justice will be done. They will pay in some way. It may be an eternity in hell. They will pay. But perhaps the day will come when they give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't, don't call down the fire from heaven. The day may come where God opens their heart, they receive the gospel, they repent of their sin, they're gloriously saved, they're transformed, and then they're going to become that forgiven forgiver as well. That's your ultimate desire, at least it should be. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, Jesus Christ extends forgiveness to you. You are a sinner. That's not an insult. We're all sinners here. That's, just the, that's, the, that's the condition of man. We are all sinners. That is, we always fall short of God's holy standard. We, we can never meet the standard. He demands personal and perpetual and perfect obedience to his law, which no man can ever perform because we're fallen. That's why Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill. He was innocent. The only man, God in the flesh, became man. The only man who could perfect, perfectly fulfill the law, and he did it. Therefore, the law couldn't condemn him. There was no penalty that he had to pay. He was not a lawbreaker. Yet he still died the punishment of a lawbreaker. Why? Because he actually died in our place as our substitute. He offered himself to the Father and said, Don't punish them for their violation of your law and your holiness. Instead, take all of their sin and place it upon me. As the eternal Son of God, he could bear the sins of the whole world. God the Father and his Son worked out the redemptive plan in such a way that a substitute was offered in your place and in my place. And there on the cross, God the Father punished the Lord Jesus Christ for the sins that you incurred and that I've incurred. Jesus gave himself willingly. The Bible refers to him as a lamb of God, that perfect sacrifice. He bore our sins. God expended all of his wrath against your sin on the person of Jesus Christ so that your debt was completely wiped out. Jesus then died and was buried, and because he was the Son of God, death couldn't hold him. Death had no claim on him. He rose three days later. He's exalted now at the right hand of the Father. And you say, what is church? These are people who have simply been forgiven by Christ, whose lives have been transformed because the gospel is real and true. They've received Christ, and in response, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of them, transforming their lives. This morning, that forgiveness is offered freely to you through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess him as Lord. Uh, embrace him as Savior, express that to God by faith, and the Bible says you will be freely forgiven as well. And then what? Join with the church. Continue on with a fellow body of forgivers, those who are forgiven, freely forgiving others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness again, and thank you for the example of the psalmist. Lord, you've given us an eternally relevant scriptures, scripture. The fact that we can look at this psalm thousands of years old and just recognize the struggle. We experience that same struggle as we consider those who have harmed us. Lord, we want them to pay. We want them to suffer. We see unfairness. We see injustice. Some of us have been hurt by others who just going on with life, just 
who just seem to be having a good old time and not suffering, not thinking twice about what they've done to us. It doesn't seem fair. But Lord, we recognize who you are and we recognize how you operate. You've revealed your plan in the future for us so that we can have this present comfort. Recognizing that justice hasn't been forgotten. You are the just judge and you will execute judgment according to your timing. And so we recognize that those who have hurt us, they will pay for that according to your will and in your timing. And so, Lord, we just leave that to you. We know you'll take care of that. And then, Lord, as difficult it may be for us, we ask that these who have harmed us, if you would be so gracious as to work in their lives, maybe you bring them to overall repentance, where they confess their sins and recognize they need to be saved. Help us to get to the point where we can just pray for the salvation of these who have hurt us. So that maybe they wouldn't suffer for their sins in hell, but their sins would be placed upon the person of Jesus Christ. And that his death on the cross could be applied to them so that they could be freely forgiven. And I know that may be a struggle for some of us this morning, but I pray you'd help us to work to that point where we could pray for those who have hurt us to be saved. But then, lastly, Lord, we just pray you'll help us to thrive in our relationship with you, take our eyes off of those who have hurt us, and instead to put our gaze upon Jesus, to nurture our relationship with him, to find fullness, uh, fulfillment and satisfaction and comfort in him. Help us to come to a place where we can confess with the psalmist that who do we have in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that we desire except you. And so, Lord, help us to be so satisfied and so secure in our relationship with Jesus that we can endure the hurts and the affliction that others impose upon us. Because we have everything we need here. And we're looking forward to the day where you'll glorify us with you. Lord, we thank you for this. Help us to apply the theology that we've learned. Lord, I recognize as a pastor that there are those this morning who this is, is not easy easy to sit and hear, but it's not easy to apply. So we just pray for your mercy. Give mercy and give grace. Help us to apply these principles to our life. Help us to act in response to what we've learned and uh, help us to extend freedom to uh, forgiveness to others. And then I pray you'll bless these who actually apply this theology. Help them to just feel that release, like that thorn being taken, taken out of the side, that thorn of bitterness. Help them to feel the, the relief and the release and heal them as a result. And I pray that they'd be better off for it. Lord, we thank you for this. And uh, we've talked a lot about past hurts, but help us to keep all these things in mind as we consider that we will be hurt in the future. So help us be prepared, having learned these things. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ.